Let us open our Bibles to Psalm 99, the 99th Psalm. It was a dilemma this morning choosing, or yesterday or the day before, to choose between Psalms 96, 97, 98, and 99. But the Lord's led me to the 99th Psalm today. Last Lord's Day was a wonderful time with you in the house of the Lord, and I'm very thankful for it. I hope that the abundance of scriptures that we used last Lord's Day were not too much, so that you lost sight of each individual passage, but I love to be in a church where the Word of God is so emphasized. And these psalms that we read and that we sing are not just to fill up space, but they're God's ordained way of worshiping Him. We are supposed to use the psalms according to Ephesians 5 and Colossians 3. And when you're merry, the Bible tells you to sing psalms, James chapter 5. And so we want to appreciate these psalms written by God's two great song leaders and psalm writers, David and Asaph. And remember that here we have inspired worship. Some of these are not so didactic in the fact that they're teaching us things as they're expressing how we should worship the God of heaven. Let's all rise together and show reverence to the Lord and his word as we read in unison the 99th Psalm. Together, the Lord reigneth. Let the people tremble. He sitteth between the cherubims. Let the earth be moved. The Lord is great in Zion, and he is high above all the people. Let them praise thy great and terrible name, for it is holy. The king's strength also loveth judgment. Thou dost establish equity. Thou executest judgment and righteousness in Jacob. Exalt ye the Lord our God, and worship at his footstool, for he is holy. Moses and Aaron among his priests, and Samuel among them that call upon his name. They called upon the Lord, and he answered them. He spake unto them in the cloudy pillar. They kept his testimonies and the ordinance that he gave them. Thou answeredest them, O Lord our God. Thou wast a God that forgavest them, though thou tookest vengeance of their inventions. Exalt the Lord our God and worship at his holy hill. For the Lord our God is holy. Amen Amen and amen. You may be seated. These four Psalms 96 through 99 all speak to the fact that God is king and reigns. And so we look at the first three words of the 99th Psalm. The Lord reigneth. There is in those words such comfort for us when we consider any of the political movements in the world, whether we consider safety on highways 
whether we consider bodily health, whether we consider personal enemies, the Lord reigns. He governs the universe and He's in charge and He has all the power and the authority of the universe. The Lord reigneth. He is God of gods, meaning He is the only true and living God over all the idols of the heathen. He is God of gods in that He is higher than the highest political rulers and civil rulers in the world. The Lord reigneth. Those words should speak great comfort to us. In Psalm 96 and verse 10, it tells us, Say among the heathen that the Lord reigneth. Psalm 97 begins, The Lord reigneth. Psalm 98 in verse 6 says that the Lord is king. And then our 99th, the Lord reigneth. What should the effect be? Let the people tremble. Now I would say that in verse 1, it is speaking to the whole earth because the whole earth is mentioned. And in verses 2 and 3, it's more the people of God because Zion is mentioned. But the the effect of knowing God should cause us to tremble. And so if worship does not involve bringing to bear the existence and glory of God to cause us to tremble, it's lacking in what the Bible tells it to have. Let the people tremble. You tremble when you're scared. You tremble when you're fearful. You tremble when you, you tremble when you're intimidated by something. And while the Lord is our Father and our blessed and precious Abba Father at that, He still is the God that reigns over all, and it should cause us to tremble. Right. He sitteth between the cherubims, let the earth be moved. These words describe what Isaiah saw When Isaiah saw the glory of God in Isaiah chapter 6, and the posts of the door moved at the voice of the cherubim crying out that God was holy. And Isaiah himself said that he was under God's judgment. And woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. The Lord reigns, the people should tremble. He sitteth between the cherubims, who are constantly ascribing holiness to Him, let the earth be moved. We should be affected. We should be staggered, like Isaiah was when that great prophet saw the glory of God. In verse 2, the Lord is great in Zion. He's not just great in the earth as Creator. He's great in Zion as the Savior of His people, and He is high above all the people, and that's where we want to put Him. I was 13 years old in 1970 when there was a very popular song, Put Your Hand in the Hand of the Man. Well, before you put your hand in the hand of the man, you better fall to your knees and tremble before the God of heaven and earth. He is great in Zion and He's high above all the people. And that's where we want to put Him. Let them, that is the people, that is the people of Zion, that is you and me, let them praise thy great and terrible name. The Lord has been referred to in the third person, and I mention this to you for you to read attentively as you go through the Psalms. The psalmist will shift his approach and the persons that he used to describe God. He's been describing him in the third person. 
The first person is you speaking about yourself, I or we. The second person is you or so on. And then there's they. When there's, and that's how the Lord is addressed in verses one and two. But then in verse three, let them praise thy, turning to the second person, great and terrible name, for it is holy. God's name, Jehovah, I am that I am, is a great and a terrible name. There is no God like him. I am that I am. You don't add anything to me. I am independent of all my creatures. I had no beginning. I have no end. I am perfection embodied. I am independent. It's a great and terrible name. But more than that, it is holy. God's holiness prohibits Him being pleased with anything in our lives that is sinful or wicked. He is of pure eyes, or He is of eyes that are holy, too holy, to behold iniquity approvingly. For it is holy. Let them praise thy great and terrible name, because God is holy. If you looked at just these three verses, the Lord reigns, people should tremble, the earth should be moved, he sits between the cherubims, the Lord is great, he's high above all the people, his name is great and terrible because of its holiness. If you just had those three verses, there should be great fear. This kind of a being, with this kind of power and dread, we have never seen anywhere else in human existence. Or even among the angels. But there's comfort in the fourth verse. And it's the second section of this psalm that I want you to focus on. It's verse 4. The third section is verses 5 to the end. The king's strength. This is the Lord. The king's strength also loveth judgment. He is not just terrible. He is not just great. He is not just high. He loves judgment. And you better be thankful that the king's strength loveth judgment. Judgment is, as the rest of the verse explains for you, equity. And judgment and righteousness. It's justice. It's fairness. It's righteousness that characterizes God's strength. If his strength was just exercised in his holiness, if his strength was just exercised in his dread, it would be tyranny. Men have been tyrannical when they're given too much power on earth. And they have exercised that power in tyranny by destroying or oppressing those under their power. But God is not that way. God is fair and righteous and just and equitable in Jacob. He's always righteous. But you can trust the living God. Though we should tremble before Him, and though the earth should be moved, He is just. He is fair. He is equitable. He is righteous. He loveth judgment. You better be thankful that the God of heaven loves judgment. And that judgment there is not loving punishment. That judgment there is loving good judgment, fairness, righteousness, justice. And it's because of that that he sees in the Lord Jesus Christ a perfect substitute for our sins. It's because of that he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. 
when we but confess them because Christ died for those sins. What a comfort. Now verses 1 through 3 should provoke our worship. Verse 4 should provoke our thanksgiving. Verses 5 through 9 should provoke our godliness. I want you to notice verses 5 and 9 that they sandwich this third section of the psalm. I'm going to read them both. Notice their similarity. Exalt ye the Lord our God and worship at his footstool for he is holy. Holy means that God has no iniquity and he hates all iniquity and he hates all sinners. The only way that God can love a sinner is to have chosen them in Christ Jesus before the world began to cover all their sins. Verse 9, exalt the Lord our God and worship at his holy hill for the Lord our God is holy. We are to lift God up and we are to worship God, and we are told why. Because He is holy. Both verses 5 and 9. Now what do we have in between? We have a description of the church of God of the Old Testament under the leadership of three of its greatest men. Two of them make the cut for the five great men of the Old Testament, and that's Moses and Samuel. Look at verse 6. Moses and Aaron among his priests. Aaron was the greatest priest Israel ever had. He was the father of all the priests. And Samuel among them that call upon his name. They called upon the Lord and he answered them. These great men, Moses, Aaron, and Samuel, called upon the Lord and the Lord heard them. This great God who is to be worshipped and who is holy, but who is who also loveth judgment and is equitable and righteous, answered prayers. Verse 7, He spake unto them in the cloudy pillar, that is to Moses and Aaron. They kept his testimonies and the ordinance that he gave them. That was their overall character of their righteous conduct. Verse 8, Thou answeredest them, O Lord our God. Thou wast a God that forgavest them, though thou tookest vengeance of their inventions. Verse 5, verse 9. Exalt God, worship Him, because He's holy. In between, three of the greatest men that have ever lived on this earth. Two of them, Moses and Samuel. But Moses and Aaron, God spake to them from His cloudy pillar. Overall, they kept His commandments, but they made some inventions And God took vengeance even upon them. So worship God at His holy hill. Because He's holy. What did Moses invent? Moses invented smiting the rock when God said, speak to the rock. What did Aaron invent? Aaron invented a golden calf while Moses was absent for 40 days on Mount Sinai. Notice this, brethren. When we come into the house of the Lord this morning, we want to exalt our God. We want to worship at His holy hill and at His footstool. And why? Because He is holy. His holiness has now been mentioned three times. In verse 3, His name is great and terrible because He is holy. 
And so as we come before Him today and as we sing this psalm, let's remember how we should tremble before Him, why we should exalt and worship Him, and let's remember His holiness. Moses and Aaron were two of His greatest. And God heard their prayers. And God forgave us them. And God blessed them. And God gave them His Word. But He took vengeance of their inventions. What are you inventing? Forsake your inventions. The Lord hath made man upright, Ecclesiastes 7.29, but they have sought out many inventions. That is any variation from God's commandment about any aspect of your life. That is an invention. Forsake your inventions. God is able to forgive, and God will forgive those who confess their sins, but He will also take vengeance of any inventions. There will be a payment to be made. Be sure your sin will find you out. As we come into the Lord's house this morning and worship Him, let's cleanse our heart and minds and hands and confess our sins that our worship will be acceptable in His sight. And, O Lord, have mercy upon us in Your vengeance for our inventions. Forgive us, Holy Father, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. We want to consider some more passages of Scripture before our brother comes to us this morning. So I'd like to ask these three brothers to come with the passages that you have before us this morning. Brother David Crosby, Brother Eric Carnell, and Brother Matthew Eastland. If you'd like to come in that order, please. Did you enjoy that song? As we read this passage, it's going to be 2 Samuel 8. As we read this passage, I want you to think about how the Lord was with a man that had that kind of psalm in his heart. Yes, amen. If King David was with us this morning, he'll be paying attention to the Word of God being read and it being expounded upon. Right. I want you to think about the talents that God gave King David and what he did with them. He occupied. Amen. 2 Samuel 8, I'm going to start at verse 1. I'm going to read the first 15 verses if you'll follow along with me. And after this, it came to pass that David smote the Philistines and subdued them. And David took Methagamah out of the hand of the Philistines. And he smote Moab and measured them with a line, casting them down to the ground. Even with two lines measured he to put to death and with one full line to keep alive. And so the Moabites became David's servants and brought gifts. David smote also Hadadezer, the son of Rehob, king of Zobah, as he went to recover his border at the river Euphrates. And David took from him a thousand chariots and seven hundred horsemen and twenty thousand footmen. And David hoed all the chariot horses but reserved of them for an hundred chariots. And when the Syrians of Damascus came to succor Hadadezer, king of Zobah, David slew of the Syrians two and twenty thousand men. Then David put garrisons in Syria of Damascus. And the Syrians became servants to David and brought gifts. And the Lord Lord preserved David whithersoever he went. 
And David took the shields of gold that were on the servants of Hadadezer and brought them to Jerusalem. And from Beda and from Barothai, cities of Hadadezer, King David took exceeding much brass. When Toai, king of Hamath, heard that David had smitten all the host of Hadadezer, then Toai sent Joram, his son, unto King David to salute him and to bless him, because he had fought against Hadadezer and smitten him. For Hadadezer had wars with Toai. And Joram brought with him vessels of silver and vessels of gold and vessels of brass, which also King David did dedicate unto the Lord, with the silver and gold that he had dedicated of all nations which he subdued, of Syria and of Moab and of the children of Ammon and of the Philistines and of Amalek and of the spoil of Hadadezer, son of Rehob, king of Zobah. And David got him a name when he returned from smiting of the Syrians in the Valley of Salt, being 18,000 men. And he put garrisons in Edom. Throughout all Edom put he garrisons. And all they of Edom became David's servants. And the Lord preserved David whithersoever he went. And David reigned over all Israel. And David executed judgment and justice unto all his people. Turn with me to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. We'll consider God's perspective and the kingdom of God. We'll consider his judgment in chapter 1. And by the way, that judgment, that righteous equity, that just decision-making apparatus of God rises to the defense of of his saints who have the characteristics described in verses 3 and 4. Second Thessalonians 1. Paul and Silvanus and Timotheus unto the church of the Thessalonians in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace unto you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We are bound to thank God always for you, Brethren, as it is meet, because that your faith groweth exceedingly, and the charity of every one of you all toward each other aboundeth, so that we ourselves glory in you in the churches of God for your patience and faith in all your persecutions and tribulations that ye endure." which is a manifest token of the righteous judgment of God, that ye may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God, for which ye also suffer. Seeing it is a righteous thing with God to recompense tribulation to them that trouble you. And to you who are troubled, rest with us. When the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels, in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power, when he shall come to be glorified in his saints and to be admired in all them that believe, 
because our testimony among you was believed in that day. Wherefore also we pray always for you that our God would count you worthy of this calling and fulfill all the good pleasure of his goodness and the work of faith with power, that the name of our Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in you and ye in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Turn, if you would, to Revelation chapter 12. We're going to start at verse 5. Now, I hope that this is not the first time you will be hearing this passage. It should not be the first time you've read it recently or heard it. Let me ask you, are you tired of it? Never. There is a natural reason for you to want to be tired of this passage. Because this passage shows the embarrassing defeat of our enemy. And he doesn't want you to remember that. Most of this world doesn't even believe he exists. He's convinced them, and they've allowed themselves to be convinced that he doesn't exist. And then the rest have pushed this all into some future event. Our enemy is already defeated, brethren. His doom is sure. And we're going to read the glorious war in heaven, the greatest war that has ever been fought, in the greatest battle that has ever been fought, so that we have nothing to worry about. So starting at verse 5 of Revelation chapter 12. And she brought forth a man-child, who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron. And her child was caught up unto God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness, where she hath a place prepared of God, that they should feed her there, a thousand, two hundred, and threescore days. And there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon fought and his angels, and prevailed not. Neither was their place found any more in heaven. And the great dragon was cast out, that old serpent called the devil and Satan, which delivered, excuse me, which deceived the whole world. He was cast out into the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. And I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now is come salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ. For the accuser of our brethren is cast down, which accused them before our God day and night. And they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. And they loved not their lives unto the death. Therefore rejoice, ye heavens, and ye that dwell in them. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and of the sea. For the devil is come down unto you, having great wrath, because he knoweth that he hath but a short time. And when the dragon saw that he was cast unto the earth, he persecuted the women, the woman which brought forth the man-child. And to the woman were given two wings of a great eagle, that she might fly into the wilderness, into her place, where she is nourished for a time and times and half a time, from the face of the serpent. And the serpent cast out of his mouth water as a flood after the woman, that he might cause her to be carried away of the flood. And the earth helped the woman, and the earth opened her mouth and swallowed up the flood, which the dragon cast out of his mouth. And the dragon was wroth with the woman, and went to make war with the remnant of her seed. 
which keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.